So welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to the Jindal School of Art and Architecture's BR programs uh, web first webinar. And this, as you know, is called Architecture Futures. And I think there's a group of uh, students here who's listening in, a group of people who are faculty possibly, and others who are interested in the idea of architectural futures. Uh, just uh, hold on. One of the speakers is just calling me. Just one second. Yes, Romy, we're waiting okay. for you. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to. <laughs> okay, I well, think we're there. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, we're sorry about that. So new technologies and new futures will lead to certain kinds of new glitches. And Romy, you need to put your camera on. That's all. <clears throat> and uh, I, I was saying. Is it webcam? I have screenshot. Huh? What do I have uh, to press? You have to press the little tiny camera on the side. Can you see this? Uh, Azad, can you please explain it to him quickly? Yes, I'm just requesting him. Just accept my request. Webcam request. Uh, share my, okay, right Okay. Hi. Hi, everybody. Now we have everybody who has to be here. So I'm just going to quickly start again. Uh, welcome to the Jindal School of Art and Architecture's BR program's first webinar. And as you know, this is called Architecture Futures, and we are in this situation of the future, which is having a webinar across uh, uh, Geneva and uh, Himachal and Delhi and Calcutta uh, with us because we have speakers from all over the place. Uh, so thank you, Matthias, for waking up early for us and being here uh, on Switzerland time. Um, I wanted to just quickly uh, introduce this the, this panel that we had uh, planned and put together. And uh, I feel that as somebody, uh, okay, I'm Sarovar Zaidi. Uh, I teach at the Jindal School of Art and Architecture, and I'm not an architect. I'm actually a social anthropologist. And you'll understand what I'll end up doing there um, in the course of this discussion uh, and the kind of questions that we will put together here. Uh, the reason that I thought of calling this architecture futures was, of course, related to the fact that uh, architecture is, has a constant anxiety towards the future as we know it. And uh, some of you may and may not have heard of this Futurist Manifesto of Architecture written in 1914 uh, by Santalia or in 1930s, uh, Corbusier is writing The City of Tomorrow and The Radiant City, which is the idea of these perfect planned cities which will solve all social justice problems and lead us to a new world. But as we can see, have we been led there right now? And how uh, how have our cities um, and uh, how has the built environment and the architecture actually solved things or not solved things? Uh, we, as part of uh, the Jindal School of Art and Architecture, in the BR program also teach courses which have uh, looked at cities like Brasilia and Chandigarh, which were based on the idea of perfect plans. And uh, there's a lot more that one can think about on uh, wh where was this future going? Or should we actually just think more about the present, you know? And there is a philosoph favorite philosopher of mine called Hannah Arendt, who talks about the idea of labor, work, and action in the present. and I think this today's discussion between the speakers and the students are also here is going to move between this idealized notion of the future that architecture imagined to what goes on in the present to what is actually 
working right now or not working what are the complexities of the situation today the messiness the pragmaticness of uh the built environment and the world of architecture today i want to quickly introduce the speakers and then we'll start this discussion i'm going to start with romi romi is the romi can you wave your hand or something because romi is sometimes also called rumi for something for reason romi kosla is an architect who studied at cambridge and at the architectural association in london uh he has had uh, he's he's practiced architecture for probably more than 40 50 years he's built houses institutions educational institutions i mean he is uh, been there done that in a sense so if uh, i could say that he's also someone who has worked uh, very rigorously with uh, you know the undp uh, and unesco through the balkan central asia and through tibet and if students who are here should are interested should read this book of his yeah i actually have a copy not many people have a copy of this uh, but your libraries may have a copy uh, he has as it's written in uh, in many of his introductions but i don't know if people actually say it out he's walked through the rubbles of palestine and yugoslavia so he's literally walked through war zones where there has been immense destruction of human life of human property habitations and housing and he's had to think about how to rebuild spaces what suggestions to give to the un how do you actually bring back life when there has been so much destruction uh, and there's a very interesting story of his uh, in palestine uh, where he literally was shooting walking through bullets being shot uh, and so it'd be very interesting to hear his views on what has been imagined as futures of architecture across the world uh now i'll move to matias matias is matias ekanova yes uh matias uh, with rahul srivastav uh, runs an experimental action group called urbs please look it up u r b z uh which is specialized in participatory planning and design uh they work across uh, mumbai bagota sao paulo geneva and seoul and actually many places um, and they are they also intellectually work through many people and systems and their major influencers as the your generation would call it um in thinking about built environments and thinking about how people build how people make and how people live um so uh, i have worked with them in the past very briefly where i worked in dharavi which is the largest uh, quote unquote slum in south asia uh, and uh, they have done immense uh, uh, Matias used to practically live there and used to work there. He's worked there for more than ten years and looked at how people build, how they inhabit houses, how they create space uh, in um, uh, resource-poor situations, etc. They have, of course, their work uh, has they've written across uh, the, from New York Times to other newspapers in the world, and their work has been shown at the Chicago uh, Architecture Biennale, the Istanbul Biennale, and the MoMA. Mukta is uh, Uh, an architect by profession and she studied at the school of planning and architecture delhi uh, and she is also an urban planner mukta's work has focused uh, she has worked at the center for policy research and led a lot of their urban studies research um, mukta has also worked a lot on urban uh, urban housing migration informality and uh, looked at both uh, two tier cities and main uh, you know the mainstream cities and looked at how people build live and kind of create the architectures that they have to then inhabit or as we know in the situation right now 
uh, of migration leave behind. So um, these are the uh, three speakers. Then, of course, we have two of our students, uh, Kirti, who is in second year BR program, and Taha, who is in the first year BR uh, program. And um, I, uh, we've got them in, so they a, are interested and involved in everything, which they usually are. Um, but also, uh, I would want to start with Kirti saying a few words uh, about her reflections on the program, and then we'll uh, hand it over to Romi and Matthias and Mukta. So, Kirti, could you? Yeah. Hi, everyone. So, yeah, as Professor Sarovar introduced me, I am a second year student and I'm doing my Bachelor's of Architecture from Jindal School of Art and Architecture. And uh, after studying varied courses like representation, society and culture, space and place, where we are constantly pushed to think from various lenses and you know look at architecture not in isolation but with various contexts of politics social life uh with time which uh brings us to the current situation where we are stuck inside our houses and we are uh working from home and we are looking at people outside trying to survive walking miles to find their own space and uh it would be really interesting to know through this discussion what exactly do we mean by architectural future and how close is it to reality in a world where we're constantly trying to attain this idea of utopia where we want everything to be perfect and to know um, which what we would working for as future is currently now present and how so far it has just like how so far people have responded to it because in my experience from what we have studied uh, in the locals and having case studies like uh, professor mentioned brasilia um, it's not just us who build cities but it's also cities building people so how there is a constant dialogue between and how we are able to adapt to it so yeah i'm like really looking forward to this talk after having looked at all of that uh, where we are constantly discussing uh, and expected to be those people who manifest this idea of future so what exactly is it that we are looking forward to what exactly are we expected to do when we talk about future and yeah it'd be really interesting to have some clarity on how far we have come from there and how far we have to go so cool thanks yeah so now i think um, romi would you could so how i planned this is that i think everybody can speak for about four, five to seven minutes five minutes to seven minutes about their ideas their concerns and then we can have a discussion there can be questions taha will also be coming in later to discuss certain things with matia since he has actually been to the herbs uh, field sites uh, and um, yeah i wanted to actually quickly read a little bit of something that i read in uh, romi's book uh, and his idea of the fact that, uh, I don't know if you'll reflect on this, but uh, the idea that macrocosmic space like the state bulldozes and codifies local culture and replaces, replaces it with a uh, macro moral order. And this is something we've seen constantly happen in, uh, in the formation of uh, cities through the idea of the nation state. Uh, while mesocosmic spaces, which is something that he thinks about, carries evolution of local cultures into the contemporary, 
without the fears of certain kinds of modernity and is based on community work and communities coming together to create uh, spaces of uh, of the lived uh, of lived spaces uh, but yeah so over to romi uh, romi also ha has been writing for the wire on the current political uh, atmosphere uh, and uh, then i think matias and then we can continue Okay, I'm, I'm, I'll just begin this. I, I did circulate to throw a, a note I'd prepared, which is what I'm going to base the discussion on, because many things are, uh, we call something a future, we don't define it. Where is it that we stand today? So certain principles, I think, which uh, we all agree with and hold good uh, for our beliefs, but we've lost track of, which is basically that earth humanity and nature are connected to each other now obviously this is a truism but actually it's been forgotten so we we don't we don't make it an active component of our architecture either in the present or in the future the three principles i had the first one was this the second one i'm saying is that um, any future that we discuss for architecture is part of a flow of history it's coming from the past and it's going to the future. So I think we have to be aware of the fact that what we have with us is an accumulation of what we've done in the present and what we've inherited from the past. And whatever future we do, whether it's a building or a city or a society, is going to come out of um, that. And the third, uh, the third more contentious uh, issue that I would uh, recommend very strongly to you is that the knowledge of uh, um, about who we are and what we should do and why life is precious that we inherited from the enlightenment in the 18th century has reached its limits. Um, and really we are on the beginning of a new era where we can think afresh. And that really means, as I'll explain a little while later, is that basically as long as you thought deeply about something, what you do in your architectural work about the present and the future is absolutely justifiable. There is no history of architecture. It's been concocted by European historians over the 20th century. There is no history of modernism because that's not how the world is. So let's, let's see, um, let's now talk about the three things. The three things are interconnectedness, uh, the durations of history, and that this is a time for new knowledge. Um, I think nobody will deny that there is a profound and deep connection between ourselves, our earth and nature. And I think this is by far the, the most important principle to activate at a higher level than we do in our buildings, in our activities, in our lives. And I think the, the recent Cornova uh, scare has realigned our uh, goals and our purposes. And there is a possibility that we could be having serious discussions about keeping uh, humanity, earth and nature in a balance. So I won't say much about that because I think that everybody is, is, is well aware of that. I, I want to say a little bit about future. How do we uh, identify the future? And the book I wrote uh, is called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Future, basically warning you as architects, if you're going to speak about the future, you're going to be lonely people because nobody is interested. They're interested in the present. So um, 
we could we could try uh, one thing and that is to place architecture into history let's just do that obviously architecture can't be placed in the history of day to day and let's leave all that to arnab goswami and how they make the history of the day to day the shortest duration of history that is the that's the ripples the splashes so architecture has no place in that history and we should not spend very much time in our minds even listening to that garbage okay absolutely no relevance to architecture we should think, think more about architecture and less about current affairs current affairs have no uh, relevance for architecture uh, now let us now consider the next longer duration of history in which architecture has relevance and i just for convenience i'm saying that's four generations history of four generations your grandfather yourself and your grandchildren let's say that let's look at a history of that period of time what happens you see 99% of current affairs dies out so why should you spend even 3 minutes of your life on it forget it it's only going to depress you let's look at the longer duration of history and see what place architecture has in it and architecture um has uh, a location in that middle duration of history all right then there's the that's a building let's say or a district or a zone then we look at the longer duration and that this middle duration is like like waves sea waves they come and splash on the seashore uh, not like ripples or splashes of the day to day history and the third duration of history is like the currents of the sea these are to do with city life the existence of a city that's the long duration so i think it's very clear to me that if you're an architect you need to you need to locate your ideas about the future in some kind of historical context because is the when you talk about the future it's not just some unknown thing what duration of future are we talking about because we are, and what duration of the past are we coming from so that's that's um, one aspect that i want to lay out the, the, the last thing is what i feel is very strongly and this is really relevant for architects is the fact that we are in a period of a, of a new knowledge and really if you think deeply as architects you are absolutely valid about thinking of any future about any future think of think of corbusier uh thinking about the utopian uh, cities of tomorrow actually there there was no limitation on him about what he could imagine it's just because nobody was imagining things that he put forward his ideas on the radiant city etc so we are in a similar time really we are in a similar time in the sense that you don't have to pay attention to anything you 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 really just need the principle of how to integrate with nature and think about any and every idea is going to be valid because what is covid shown us covid has shown us that neither the scientists nor the politicians nor the bankers nor the administrators nor the bureaucrats can agree on anything and this thing is wiping us out so this is the time for new knowledge i'm not going to listen to the authoritarian views coming from any sector i as an architect say all right i'm as entitled to think about the future um, as they are so because we have seen that you know charles darwin gave us uh, biological evolution he 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 drew out a wonderful world of how we evolved biologically total imagination have you seen it happening no i have not 
Have we deduced it? Yes. From what? From Charles Darwin. Karl Marx gave us a whole uh, idea about social evolution, how societies develop. Have you seen it happening? Yeah. What did we get as the result of all this? Very profound European thinking. 250 million lives were lost. They were world wars, civil wars, genocides. So hold it, guys. Can we just get off this whole trolley altogether? Can we rethink ourselves of where we are? What kind of buildings we need? What should be the logic behind this? Because the, the concocted history of modernism has, is like a weight around our neck, right? It is taught in our schools. We still uh, make heroes of the, of the modern movement and all of these characters, but actually just put them aside, right? Just put them aside. These are people of history who don't matter, nor do their ideas matter because this is where they've led us. This is where we finally arrived today, COVID. So here's the time, open the door. Let's start thinking about fundamentals again and just do it through your work. Okay, so I'll just leave it at that for the moment. Okay, Rami, thank you for your short and uh, current talk on the issues related to at hand. And But I would also at some point want you to uh, dwell on uh, the different crises and the worlds that you have actually seen, which have affected the moment of uh, the city, the built space, the humanitarian crises that you have actually worked through, whether they are wars or, uh, you know, other things, the Cold War, etc. Uh, it will be interesting to kind of see uh, what were the responses in those spaces and then maybe we can compare it to some of the things that go on today. Uh, but we can come back to some of that and you can think about it. Um, well, I, I, just, I just fill that in is that mm -hmm. in, in, I have lived through many uh, periods of conflict, uh, war zones, almost been shot twice, etc. So I have a, a kind of my own experience of this. But if I reflect on it, every source of violence is caused by a utopian idea. Somebody is imposing a utopian idea on other people. And it is, uh, uh, there is a word for it, um, which is contentious. He mm. or she who is contentious is prone to violence. Mm. Now, when you get convinced that your solution is better than the solution of others, you mm. are likely to be entering the zone of violence, whether it's a society, whether it's a building, whether it's the principles of architecture, whether it's any of these. Not tomorrow, if, if we say to ourselves that we are green architects and we start imposing, imposing green on other people because we feel we understand the planet's problems better than other people, we will enter that zone of being contentious and harmful. So very clearly what what I'm saying is that my experience has shown at first hand that consciousness has been responsible for much of the violence that I've experienced at social architectural level. So we, my, my, um, this is a perfect, uh, 
kind of bridge towards Matias's work because I think Matias's work uh, deals with uh, how how utopia, like what you said, uh, source of violence is caused by utopian violence. Uh, Bukta, I think you're having an echo in your thing, uh, and my voice. No, now it's gone. So, uh, it's a it's a perfect bridge to what the work that Herbs does, and I think I'll hand over the space, virtual space, to Matthias now to talk about uh, how they kind of uh, talk, uh, bring us to the present and do away with these notions. Have been violent to the histories of built forms and architecture. Thank you, Sarova, for the invitation. Uh, I also hear some echo. Just one second. Mukta, I think what is happening is your uh, echo keeps coming, and what happens is that your thing also goes off my microphone. For a bit. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, yep. Yeah. So no, I mean it was, it was really nice to uh, to hear um, uh, Rumi um, describe um, his take on the on the present and the future on this idea of continuation. Um, I think it's very important to our work. Um, and maybe I just want to start with um, just taking a, a step back on this idea of the of the future um, and to already start questioning it. Um, you know, because this is really the basis of our our, our, our starting point is a question about uh, the projection, the projection we can do, and this kind of idea that we can go from state A to state B uh, through architecture, through policy, through changing everything, uh, through building something completely new. Um, so uh, there's this uh, uh, French sociologist called Bruno Latour, uh, who's, who's, I mean, he's done many interesting work, but he's done, um, he's, he's uh, uh, said something very interesting about the notion of the future. Um, he said that um, the notion that the future itself um, is, a, is, a, is a notion that belongs to the past. You know, we kind of like lost it somewhere um, in the second half of the 20th century, around the 60s. You know, maybe Brasilia one of this, one of, was one of those last big, big projects where we really thought that we could build the future uh, from scratch, literally kind of the through a tabula rasa. And uh, that now that we understand that basically what we were producing when we tried to create a future um, was uh, full of, of externalities that are coming back to us. Food, we created more problems by trying to project something which was essentially big utopias, uh, big urban utopias, political utopias. Um, he said, actually, now that we understand this, we left with, with uh, only uh, not the future, but something that um, it's, it's a French word which doesn't have a translation, which is the avenir, which literally means what is coming to us, what is coming to us. So it's really interesting how, how and, and the situation now is, is a perfect example of, um, of how um, what is coming to us cannot be foreseen. We, can't, we cannot um, um, prepare ourselves totally for what is coming to us. We've just, we just know that we've created in, in our kind of impulse to build the world in a certain way. We've created many things which are now you know, coming. And the environment is, of course, a perfect example of this. Uh, and now we have to be no less creative, no less creative than the architects that, you know, once thought that they could just create a city or, or you know, or build something totally from scratch. Um, but our, our creativity needs to um, be rooted in uh, a recognition of the present. 
Um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll present um, our context a bit, the context in which herbs works. Um, so you understand a bit, you know, um, how we go from the context to a methodology, uh, an approach that now we're also applying in different in different places, um, including in Bogota, in Sao Paulo, uh, in Seoul, in, in Geneva. Um, so I'll just uh, and and uh, start over. Whenever um, you know you you feel uh, I'm going on for too long and you start losing audience, you just tell me and I'll shut up. Okay. It's okay. I don't think we're going to lose audience, Mathias. So Never lost audience. I'll, I'll, um, you, see, you see my screen now? Yeah. Uh, is it the biggest we can get, uh, Azad? The screen? Yeah, I think it is quite fine. Okay. I mean, you can... Ah, yeah, perfect. Yeah? Okay. Okay. So I just, I just give you some context about um, you know, our work. Uh, I mean, first of all, yes, we, we were born, uh, and this is really a, a location that, that we chose. Um, we were born in, in this, uh, about 10 years back in, in, in Dharavi, in Mumbai, um, which is a, a, a neighborhood which is often uh, called the slum. Um, I mean, we, 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 never, um, we, we never had this relationship to the neighborhood. We never thought that, um, you know, this was a, a neighborhood which we should qualify as a slum just because we understood that um, what was most important there um, is not so much uh, the, 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 um, the, the uh, let's say, um, what was most important is how uh, this neighborhood is moving forward um, through the contributions of the people who live there. And this is really what we tried to build a practice upon. Um, so this is where we kind of, you know, first understood that um, even um, in, with conditions which are extremely um, difficult, um, even with a, um, a context in which the state um, is actually not helping, but making it more difficult, um, even with, with a, a lacking infrastructure, a lack of support, um, even with zero capital to start with, um, there's, there's, there's a capacity which exists to collectively produce a habitat. Um, and this has always been a fascinating thing for us. And when I say us, I, I really mean uh, 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 Raul Shivastrav, who's an anthropologist with whom we started herbs uh, and myself, and then a team um, that we work with, which is which is you know based there, located in in Daravi, um, and uh, that um, that is kind of like on, on an everyday basis uh, doing projects over there and also in other places now um, in India and on, on, on the other places around the world. So uh, our motto was always to see, okay, wh what is this uh, city that we are generating through uh, use through daily practices. Um, how does this get, get gets built incrementally? Um, and, and how can we find the, the genius in this? And also, um, how can we as practitioners build on uh, those processes that we observe? Um, so the first thing for us is always to see that okay, you know, we have um, we have an energy uh, locally. Um, we have skills. We have knowledge, um, and it is for us to build upon that to work with. Um, those energies are not against them. And we feel that, you know, one of the uh, saddest thing that has happened in the practice of architecture um, is that uh, we, we, we often um, come, let's, let's say typically our architecture students um, would come um, uh, to, to school and suddenly understand that, oh, you know, I, I, can, I can start, um, you know, producing things. I can, I can I, I get those tools which are uh, my hands, I can make models, I have my, my imagination, I can project. Uh, but ultimately, um, these powers um, are set to a destructive mode if they're not based 
upon uh, the recognition of the existing and uh, a tie-up with uh, those forces locally, economically, socially, culturally, um, which create the, the social and urban fabric. So this is us working with the uh, local contractors, uh, and we, we do a lot of that. So we, we do a lot of um, um, design work uh, with local builders, which we uh, feel have much more knowledge of the context and much more ability to deliver uh, projects on the ground than, uh, than ourselves. Um, so, you know, this is, this is a few things that, that we, we're taking on board and that really kind of bring into our, our methodology. Um, it's, a, it's this idea that, you know, uh, it, it's not so much for us, less is more, and it's not about reducing, it's about understanding that, uh, you know, what seems to be messy at first um, is actually uh, the raw material that we have to work with. And this is really important because um, this idea of the slum, uh, this idea of, um, of a context which is uh, dysfunctional, uh, which is problematic, which is even uh, toxic, you know, this is actually exactly the world in which we all live now. We, we are the, the whole uh, earth in a way. Um, we've, we've actually turned it into uh, a slum of sorts. We, we've turned it, turned it into a place which is, which is polluted, which is broken, which is, which is corrupt, you know, which is a toxic material. But this is all we have, and, and we, we can't turn our back on it and say that, no, but actually we need another, another Earth, another world. No, this is, this is what we have. We have to work with it. Um, and, and this sense of engagement is, is really, uh, for us, uh, essential. Uh, and just maybe very briefly, three, three things like that, um, that are kind of uh, key anchors for our approach. Um, the first one is, is recognition. Um, and and this, is, this is essential because um this is just simply saying that oh you know, when you come to a place um it's already moving it's already already going in some direction and people have been at work for years generations uh creating uh something that is that is a habitat that is an economy that, that are relationships and and this is um uh what we need to first recognize first of all because if we don't you know we're probably going to be destroying it uh in the process of trying to intervene um then uh, this idea that um, uh, of the homegrown neighborhood, which is the, the neighborhood which is built from within uh, through local forces. Uh, this is important for us. We define uh, Daravi on many other places around the world um, as a homegrown, um, rather than uh, saying that they are slum or informal. Uh, informal is, is, is very for us uh, derogative. It says that, you know, we, we're not sure it has a form or a logic or it's dis dysfunctional. Yes, I mean, but you know, really, uh, more than anything, what we see and what we can build on is this capacity which the neighborhood always had, and, and every neighborhood, in a way, um, had of, of improving itself over time. The only neighborhoods which really have a hard time improving is those which have been master planned uh, and, you know, stuck in time once and for all, uh, and those only go downhill. But, you know, when you go into this uh, low-rise, uh, high-density, um, uh, you know, like high intensity kind of neighborhoods, there is always this capacity to, to improve. And this is something which is important. And maybe I'll just finish with this. Um, this little introduction is about this idea that um, rather than coming with uh, ready-made forms um, and ready-made uh, ideas about, you know, what should be, um, typically, I mean, the idea that, oh, we should be more like Singapore, um, you know, First, this is this 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 never actually works. You know, it always brings failure, as as I said before. What we should rather do um, is uh, is understand uh, how can we uh, build on existing processes 
uh, and and then kind of like add to it, add to those processes, become part of it um, in, in a very kind of uh, interactive way, uh, very engaged way. Um, and the form emerges out of those uh, processes. So I, I think I'll leave it with uh, this now and I'll stop sharing my screen. Thank you, Matthias. Actually, it's really interesting that you showed us this thing of uh, uh, making through doing and being immersed in certain environments to be able to understand uh, what is architecture, what is and the fact that you mentioned materiality. In fact, in our uh, in our school in the first year, we have different uh, atelier courses where we make students work with uh, you know from concrete to figuring out how to uh, work with bricks and uh, materials of different kinds, introduce them, and just actually, as it means to get their hands dirty, rather than just uh, uh, work on one format of architectural education. Uh, so they're different people who come together to create these teams and uh, make the students work uh, with materials. And uh, it's not it's not as immersive as uh, work. The herbs uh, fieldwork site in Tharawi this year, and uh, I want uh, Taha, who is very much part of this trip. Uh, Taha, are you here? Yes. Would you like to ask something to Matthias or reflect on some of uh, your things from the trip? It will be really nice. Yes, I just give some insight. So I'm. I'm uh... I'm actually in the my first year and as part of the research study program we had we in the winter we went to Bombay and we had the opportunity to actually visit Herb's office and Rahul Shivasa actually held a workshop for us for the day and you know, the questions that we actually had picked up in our course issues of categorization classification were again uh, like we actually saw it happen again so it's the, it's uh, this one interesting picture that shared with us uh, so it was a stitched picture uh, so half of it was of a sort of low-cost, efficient housing from Japan, and the other half was actually from Dharavi. So none of us initially could recognize the difference. And it was later that they told us, oh, this half is actually from right from outside, and the other one is from Japan. So, so the questions of so see why is this happening? Why is that uh, what we what we have outside? We're not really even recognizing it as as habitation. That 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 slum a slum in itself is a sort of a contested category. So it was actually interesting to hear also Dr. Matthias also further elaborate on, on, on the topic. Also in regard to this, uh, in, whenever we as architects talk about the future, questions of you know, words like uh, sufficient and uh, green and uh, smart usually come to the forefront. And if you actually look at, uh, so how, how, do, how do these uh, places like Dharavi actually compare to the more formal sort of habitations other in terms of sufficiency? And how, how self-sufficient are they? So even those questions were picked up and it was interesting to hear Dr. Matthias also elaborate mm. on these. So I think this is, uh, Matthias, these are things we'll come back to, but I think it's a good bridge to move to Mukta's work of what kinds of habitations and formalities and informalities inform how people live. And uh, Mukta, I'm sorry, I think, uh, uh, I think we have enough time because we also started about seven minutes late. But yes, you have about okay. I, I'm not thinking of a very rambling kind of uh, intervention anyway. Uh, I, I'd like to pick on, on, on what Matthias has brought to the fore about generating the city through daily practice um, and sort of um, con, um, bridge it with uh, Romy's uh, statement about 
nobody being interested in the future and actually people are uh, really invested in the present um, and then sort of relate these two statements to my own work. So before I became a policy researcher, I used to work with uh, uh, MHS City Labs, which does um, somewhat intervenes in somewhat similar context as herbs does. So that was a very uh, embedded architectural, uh, a spatial, tactical experience. And then you cross over to this policy space where there's a lot more abstraction. And the way I've dealt with it is by uh, focusing my field research on sites where these kind of processes are unfolding constantly. So I'm going to bring in some experiences from urban villages in Gurgaon, which is uh, just outside of Delhi, just south of Delhi, uh, where uh, entrepreneurs, local landlords, they build large uh, rental housing complexes to house migrant workers and these complexes have really become sort of at the center of conversation right now with policymakers talking about formally built uh, rental housing after many many years of neglecting this issue of rental so i'll uh, borrow a bit from there and then a bit from my work in in small towns uh, where again uh, i think um, a lot of the times architectural futures and utopias don't really think of provincial uh, sleepy towns where a lot is happening but they also have a certain sleepiness and different form of speciality and temporality to them and that lived reality uh, actually informs uh, so much that's happening in this country certainly over half of urban india lives in places like this and the urban indians who are being added to this box of urban are all living in those places not like we imagine in places like Harari. so we really need to keep that context i think in mind that the majority of urban indians are living in in very provincial small places where those lived realities are not actually interacting with professional or technocratic knowledge forms that architects hold so um and and to to uh, to move from people whether they interest the way people invest in the future is through aspiration this is what i found in my work that India is a very aspirational country, uh, very young. Uh, people imagine their futures. Uh, that aspiration undergirds their everyday struggle. So on an everyday basis, they are betting on their future in a certain way, whether they are, uh, and, and uh, this could be a relational sort of an imagination in the sense of uh, I'm imagining a future compared to what my present is, uh, which also other speakers brought up already. But it could also be just an imaginary, which is as utopian as what Corbusier may have imagined. Uh, and that's something that Asher Gertner brings out in how in Bastis in Delhi, people have pictures of housing, which is uh, so aspirational that they may never achieve it in their own lifetimes. But, but that doesn't stop them from, from dreaming or from thinking of that as an ideal. Um, so. Um, I sort of uh, also want to bring in here whose imaginaries get documented and heard and sort of the power relation here as a very important point. And that's what subaltern studies or urbanists who talk about urbanism in the global south and all these sound like very, you know, esoteric academic terms, but really what they're concerned about is whose imaginaries are important in shaping uh, the world. And, and as we stand right now at a point where we're all thinking that we have some sort of a gateway or portal into a different future, uh, that's something that I really wanted to underpin. A couple of other ideas I wanted to bring, uh, bring which I made, uh, like Romy, I made a few notes yesterday after our conversation, um, is uh, sort of the idea of design adding value 
in the context of property urbanism. So when I do my field research in these urban villages uh, in Gurgaon, I'm often asked, are you an architect? And then informally consulted about various kind of, uh, you know, ideas that they may have. And, and these entrepreneurs are actually actively steering the conversation forward on how design can help them run better businesses. Their concern may not necessarily be how they can be better habitats for renters. And that's a value add that the architect needs to bring in from his own, his or her own ethical perspective. So just trying to bring forward that, you know, how do architects sort of uh, negotiate demands that clients or you know, that are being made of them, uh, uh, which, which also then have an eye to the future. The other idea I wanted to bring in is that ideas travel as images and narratives. And this is from my small town work. So for example, in Udaipur, you, which is a town that hasn't really grown much in population over the last 15 odd years, because it's in a valley, it's not industrialized. Uh, it, it sees a lot of tourism, but not really a, a boom in its own population. But you see these empty high-rise towers that have been constructed, and they're there as as sort of a sort of disembodied image brought in from somewhere else. Uh, similarly, uh, my work in Kishangarh in Rajasthan, which is like a town of a, a lakh and a half, um, has housing that could be literally picked up from suburban Delhi and brought there, you know, the builder flows that we see in, in, in Noida or in uh, Gurgaon or in Ghaziabad that just sort of brought there and put there and nobody there really imagines a present in them, but they are okay to invest in something that looks like their idea of the future. So, um, very again, how do we... Uh, that you're saying, which yeah. is uh, also something, uh, uh, you know, I work on Bombay, and Bombay architecture is about this movement of, well, you can call it Indian Ocean architecture, you can call it the Silk Route architecture. Uh, there's a lot of movement, aspiration, and a lot of, uh, which is related to masons, uh, builders, you know, contractors, all kinds of people and traders moving between spaces. And the movement of the contemporary uh, also continues in that sense. You know, so architecture is constantly uh, performing these movements in its presence, in whether it's a small town or a big city or a, even a village will suddenly have a house which looks like it's from somewhere else, right? Yeah, and, and uh, now well, it doesn't have to physically uh, move. The image moves digitally also. So that has then added another set of complexities uh, to this. So basically, I just wanted to say that, I mean, we seem to be living in multiple temporalities simultaneously. So so the idea of the future is complicated by the fact that that future, uh, I mean, that, that our idea of time itself is, is complex uh, at, at any given point. And, and right now, I think, is, is as good a time as any as, as trying to resolve some of those questions. Great. Actually, this also connects to uh, some of the work, Matthias, that you've done on migration. Uh, of uh, workers and uh, people who come into Bombay to work and then they go away. Uh, and a lot of people, uh, as, as we know, build back houses in their villages and they work in the city, right? And th there is also that connection of uh, uh, what you, what Mukta is calling as aspiration, but also this idea of, uh, you know, carrying with you designs, uh, carrying with you forms uh, and structures that you want to then recreate in different spaces. And uh, that is also, I think, uh, relates to Romy's earlier point that I was reading out from his book, which is the 
metacosmic space of creation, which is kind of evolving through movements, interactions, interfaces, and creating new uh, uh, locations of the contemporary, essentially, right? Uh, and then we can't uh, really, and it's it's a continuous uh, process. It's not like uh, it's it's not uh, something which is uh, it's generative. And I think what is happening with the Vidharavi is generative. What is happening in smaller towns is generative of those locations. And what uh, may have happened in a post-war Palestine is generative of what uh, they can hold and create at that moment. You know, what is the materials available, how they can build, what are the designs, how they want to present themselves. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, I think it's a very interesting way that the future is always ever present and ever generative in, is if, if we could say that in architectural futures um anybody anyone wants to respond to this what i'm saying uh, there are some questions we're getting from the audience uh hey, let's look at the questions um you know we can okay. be talking to amongst <laughs> us okay so there is a question for romi oh my god uh, can we ever get out of better bad lengths while analyzing or designing projects? Uh, a moral intellectual position cannot be made the logical per per precursor to violence, just as the answer to religious conflict is not the annihilation of religion itself. Belief, yeah. So essentially, what the person is asking is, I don't know who's asking. This. I didn't quite get the first part. So this is a question which is, uh, I think, a question that uh, haunts a lot of architects. Uh, yeah. And I have, a, I can lay a bet this question has been asked by an architect. Uh, can we ever get out of the better bad lens of analyzing or, or, or design projects? So you basically, uh, the person is asking, can a moral intellectual position be made the logical precursor to violence, just as the answer to religious conflict is not the annihilation of religious belief? So if the project is more uh, 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 is analytically sound, uh, can we uh, then um, think of that? Uh, can we dis dissociate the moral and the intellectual position from the soundness of a design project? Yes. I think it's important for us as architects to understand that when we design a building or a solution, let's say, it doesn't have to be a building, it's a very personal one, all right? I mean, we are not, we are not going to be using that building as a broadcasting platform for our beliefs which other people have to follow. I think that when somebody comes to you as an architect or an idea occurs to you as an architect and you decide to offer the solution, it's very much a personal personal activity. So when you want to practice a religion, uh, similarly, it's a very personal activity. Now, if I get out and start telling you how to practice your religion, or I get out and tell you how to design a building, I'm getting contentious. I'm going to be entering an area which is an unnecessary area for architecture. I think that if I uh, take the work of, of the early modernists like Korb or Mies van Rosen, they made statements, they gave declarations, they made manifestos, they designed buildings, but they didn't resort 
to being contentious or being dismissive about what else is going on around you. I think this is very important that you can you can hold on to your principles and practice your principles of architecture and design. But when you start using that to find fault with what's going on around you and what other people are doing, that I think is, is crossing a line, which I wouldn't, wouldn't suggest that you do, all right? Okay. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, Rumi has also, Rumi is also a student of Buddhist philosophy. And one of the first times I actually met him was we discussed Buddhist epistemology as part of thinking about architecture, actually. Uh, so you will not get the usual separation of fact and value kind of answers from him. Uh, and uh, uh, do we have any more questions, Azad? Uh, students, just, just give, give us, I think, a minute. Anyways, we are coming so to the questions. Okay, I'll wait for 30 seconds for questions uh, and uh, <laughs> I'll wrap up. Maybe if you want, uh, in the meantime, I can just um, uh, respond to uh, Taha's yeah. question. Yeah, please respond to Taha's question. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's, there's the, actually, there's, it, I mean, um, he, I just found the image he was referring to. Uh, it's something, it's a series of images that we have been um, uh, producing uh, to kind of show the, um, you know, how the low-rise, uh, high-density incremental fabric uh, is something which is quite universal um, as, a, as, a, as a typology of, uh, of habitat over the world. Uh, and specifically, um that there's, there's nothing wrong intrinsically with it you know so what we dismiss as being uh you know a slummy typology uh, can actually be very functional um and maybe i'll just um i share the screen quickly i think this can you see it now mm -hmm. it yeah yeah so that's that's one of the images that um that is referring to uh where you see um on the on the left -hand side you see tokyo uh, on the right hand side is Daravi. Um, so all the wood uh, and uh, corrugated sheets, uh, this is all uh, in Tokyo, um, the pathway also. It's just to say that, um, I mean, this is like a specific argument about Tokyo as a city, but it's also about um, a homegrown um, vernacular um, a typology, which we can find pretty much all over the world. It's what happens by default when you don't have a plan, and um, technology can be perfectly integrated with, um, with you know, with very good quality infrastructure as has been done over the years uh, in uh, all over Japan. Uh, again, Daravi on the right, on, on Tokyo uh, on the left, and then we've, we've also tried with different places. This is the uh, Koriwada in Daravi in the right on, on Italy. Uh, Perugia in Italy on the on the left. This is the Shenzhen and Daravi uh, mixed together. The Paolo Paraisopolis where we also worked uh, and Daravi mixed together. So yeah, this, this, this is really for us like the idea of the homegrown. You know, the homegrown is very important. Uh, 
maybe I just, you know, since I, I'm speaking, I just also respond to one thing which I found really nice in uh, what Mukta was saying. Um, is this question about uh, whose imagination it is? Uh, what, what is this imagination based upon? Based on um, where do we get our facts? No, how do we come up? How do we imagine how people live, what people need? Um, and, and something which has been very, very striking in this, uh, in the response to the pandemic, uh, has been uh, uh, in India, in fact, Europe, um, is how little the government um, was prepared uh, to see the, the kind of uh, mass movement of people towards the village, you know. Um, and, and the reason for this is that. Um, it is actually not uh, something that can be seen in statistics, <laughs> but it's something that can be shown uh, once you start understanding uh, how people relate to the city and how people relate to the native villages. Um, we, we've, um, this is just um, a solution that we have done at the Bahadajilad Museum, uh, the city museum of Mumbai, in which we ask people to um, connect their uh, neighborhood in Mumbai to their native village anywhere in India. And uh, this, uh, this was after a few weeks of people coming to the exhibition. Uh, everybody had a place, you know, to connect to. So, um, uh, you know, this is the kind of like urban fabric that we're also talking about. This is, this is also facts, but they're very hard to perceive through statistics. And imagine, our imagination is quite limited um, to what we can, and especially at the policy level, at the urban planning level, uh, by, by what we can just infer from uh, from, from data, which will never be able to show us really uh, what are the movements. We need to also invent other ways of understanding reality and also to, uh, of giving account of the reality uh, that we are dealing with. Okay, so there are lots of questions for everybody. I'm going to quickly read some of them out. They're kind of long, uh, but uh, we'll see how much sense we can make out of them. And Taha also wants to continue the discussion with Matthias, but let me read out the questions first. Um, for Matthias, the question is, form follows function, form follows fiction, form follows process. Perhaps we need to question the very idea of form following, especially in the light of proclamations made by Latour that you mentioned, question of temporality, but have also been made time and again by a whole bunch of theorists. Indeed, perhaps the problem is for those agents who claim themselves the title architect, hinging their identity on the question of form, which is itself understood un through a certain idea of time, etc. Uh, then there is a question which is, uh, probably this is why the term architect is elephant in the room. Okay, analogy of religion to architect architecture makes architect the high priest how can one mitigate this principally um sorry i'm going to read all of these out and then you can give shorter responses to this because time is running out now looking at designing as a process of redesigning in dharavi is there a need for the intervention of architects for those people uh, for the people uh, themselves can alter their built surroundings um then for Mukta, there is uh, more questions. Hi, Mukta. I'm Aditi. I'm an urban planner from Mumbai. Uh, I like uh, like Mukta bringing in subaltern studies into active discussion here. How are the practitioners centering subaltern representation in their work? And how does it affect the way we think about the future? Is there any work done on subaltern aspirations? Uh, and how does that get centered in the policy-based conversations? Oh my God, there's just too many questions. I think we need to stop. Like, like 
really oh i can't like read like a scroll machine one second uh dear dr matias will places like dharavi ever become well planned and properly structured society this is the kind of question matias will answer um so this is a interesting question which is uh, all speakers talked about how architects have this imaginary that they based on a dialogue from history in this technocratic authoritarian human nature where would earth neighborhoods and aspirations stand in creating future dialogues not necessarily in the making of history for the future um god i am like tired now uh to think that the city development and aspirations which mukta talked about with reference to gertner's work it would be nice to hear from any of you regarding how we as faculty and students of built spaces and its practices can locate ourselves to integrate and be part of both the critique of a specific form of urban development but also work with aspirations okay i'm stopping now so now you can pick up mukta you want to start anybody wants to respond it's like so much yeah, yeah i'm uh, so i'm going to bring um, this question about subaltern studies is also a question of how interdisciplinary we are in our practice so i mean as somebody who has um, jumped from working with architects and uh, planners to working with social scientists largely i'm acutely aware of the fact that very few uh, people are actually able to move very much out of the discipline and that's really constricting so whereas a lot of people have talked about uh, like the for example subaltern urbanization which is a book that rips off the word subaltern in 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 a way that you can you you know you can get angry about it you can agree with it you can disagree with it but it, it it's provocative in the sense that it brings the provincial small town into the center of discourse uh, so there are those kind of engagements that urbanists have had with subaltern studies but i think not so much architects so there, there are lots of architects who practice uh, in in ways in which they actually bring subaltern perspectives into their practice so so it's really a little bit about the pedagogy of architecture and how it addresses these issues about inequality or multiple and varying perspectives i'll leave it leave it there because i think that broadly just puts another provocation on the table yeah. okay so uh, matias and romi uh, i think romi there was a question related to architect Church and religion, uh, architects. Uh, where is this question? An analogy of religion to architecture makes the architect the high priest. How can one mitigate this principally? I don't know who has made them the high priest, but okay, maybe you can tackle this, and then Matias, you can go with some of the questions that were hit uh, at you. Uh, I'm going to talk very briefly on on, on yeah. two issues. One is the architecture, the high priest. We should understand that architects are part of the classic. professions that came out of the enlightenment which is basically doctors engineers uh, lawyers and we are the architects of it so i think you are quite entitled to feel your part of the elite what i think is not advisable to do is to become the priest to convert other people we are certainly i think architects by their very training are taught to be arrogant every architect that comes out of the school of architecture has a large element of arrogance 
in his professional makeup, which, which makes him very impatient, makes him or her very impatient with the conditions that they exist and how he's going to change it. That's the nature of our uh, training as architects. So I think you have to live with it. Uh, I don't see any harm in architects being arrogant um, and, and thinking they have a solution, but they have to convince people. <laughs> that's not going to be easy at all. So that's one aspect of it I want to deal with. The other aspect is um, to do with Matha's work in Dharavi, where I did also some work, it's a, it's a slightly different dimension, uh, which I'll, since Dharavi is on the, uh, on the menu, I'll, I'll just relate to you. Um, you see, um, when I was studying, one of my teachers was, was Amartya Sen. And when later on he did get the Nobel Prize for uh, development and freedom, I had a discussion with him and I said, listen, all of this very abstract stuff, how do we know that it has any meaning for those people who are living in uh, societies which, for which very little has been done by the state? And Dharavi was the example. And I then went and spent about 10 or 15 days in a different program, actually uh, trying to validate whether, in fact, the level of freedom that uh, Sen was talking about was a uh, was a was a um, significant component of your development. In other words, the freer you are, the quicker you will develop. That's basically the idea behind the book. And when we went to to, to Dharavi, our um, work was very different from what Matthias did. Matthias was actually in the organic substructure of that place. We were doing a, a series of interviews and and going through the saving circle and all of that stuff, which, which actually helps to generate life in, in Dharavi, independent of the establishment. And I think we did come fairly close to the conclusion because of the way the community was able to initiate um, actions on its own without the help of state and how the community used to fight because they were all uh, formed in saving circle groups, etc. We did come to the conclusion that in fact the state uh, the role of the state is, is, is really quite dysfunctional if you make it come into Dharavi, because the role of the state is dominated by big building in the interests. And the, mm. the way the thing to do is what, what Matthias was doing is you get into the substructure of a very beautiful, healthy society, right? I'm not talking about the poverty level. I'm talking about the, the spirit of life that is present with Matthias would have come across and how little the state can do and how much we have to be very, very self-reliant on uh, getting out of this jam that we've got into. So I think, uh, Matthias, you have like uh, a minute to explain everything that has been asked of you. No, I mean, I just, I just, I mean, there's, there's oh, lots of very nice questions that, that, there are lots of very nice questions that I would love to kind of, uh, uh, try to respond to but i just want to um you know bounce back on uh what uh romy was saying because it, it's uh i mean to to me um th this idea of uh development as freedom um is uh is actually it's very important it's very interesting uh and and it's it's, it's of course on the one hand is is the fact that yes if you if you're free uh, freer then you can develop more but it's also that um when you incapacitated to develop you free yourself also uh, and this is really also about about self-development on what are the conditions 
um, the institutional, uh, the, the policy conditions, uh, the, 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 in terms of recognition of, um, of your citizenship and your rights, your rights to the city. What are the conditions um, that allow you to develop? And, and this is really, I mean, to me, this is really fundamental. And this is really what we've not seen, unfortunately, at the policy level um, in uh, Indian cities. When, in fact, we've seen a tremendous capacity to develop. I mean, people are showing it every day, all the time, in spite of everything, in spite of the government making it difficult for them, um, they, they, are, they are able to kind of cope on make do. You know, if only, I mean, this takes so little. I mean, actually, in, in, we also work in the context of Switzerland, um, which is highly regulated, in which we can work through institutions in order to do participatory urban planning. Um, but um, the propensity, the kind of uh, culture of co-creating, of co-building, um, of, of collective kind of uh, collectively inhabiting a neighborhood is very poor, you know. Um, so institutions are there, but you know what we struggling with here is to tell people, you know, okay, yeah, you know, let, let's go, let's do, you know, we can actually think about the built environment as some as a democratic space that we can contribute to. Um, in India, it's there, you know, it's it's all there. Like like there's this capacity already. It just needs to be freed up a bit, you know. It's okay. Yes. Yes, you can do that. You know, yes, you know, let's invest in our houses. Um, you know, and, and so I, I just feel that um, I was, I was frustrated about, about the fact that the potential is there uh, and it's so clear, you know, uh, um, but it just needs to be opened up and allowed a bit, you know. In fact, uh, I think uh, this also reflects on to some of the things that uh, as a part of our BR program, uh, this point that you're saying, the free to free yourself to be able to do, to make, to work with the resources that you have. And also developing yourself as, as a path to freedom. You know, development yeah, as the freedom, you know, but self-development, not development. Yeah. From this is something definitely uh, encouraged and try for as part of uh, the pedagogical exercises of uh, the school. And uh, but, uh, but if you want to respond to the question, sorry, Mukta. Now, I just wanted to bring in here that the fact that uh, it's not just the very seasonal and sort of temporary inhabitants of the city who have voted to leave, but even people who have actually practiced this form of development for years have had the urge to leave, uh, I think uh, sort of makes you reflect on when the state comes back in such a sort of front and center way as we have experienced in the lockdown. It sort of breaks these these networks and these trusts and these things that have developed for so long. So it's also a state society, state citizen, I'm going back to Romy's reflection, but it's important for us to sort of underscore that the absence of the state made certain things possible and its reassertion is actually, you know, bringing, has brought us to a very dangerous place right now yeah, where, where we're trying to reflect on the future. A lot of uh, stress and uh, totalitarianism in a sense, right? Uh, where the overbearing state is what we are kind of experiencing as of now. Um, so I think, um, Matthias, the questions that have been directed to you, I will copy them out and send them to you. <laughs> and maybe we can put them up as a part of the blog because we're really running out of time. And uh, I, uh, Taha also had a question. Taha, I'm going to put you in touch with Matthias. We can continue these conversations. It's been really amazing for us to have all of you here. Uh, it's been uh, it's it's kind of like a reflection of what uh, we imagine as part of uh, thinking and working on our BR program, which moves about from thinking theoretically to working with hands to thinking about real issues on the ground. Uh, 
uh, thinking beyond big cities you know just i think the milieu that all of you brought in is exactly uh, what we try to achieve as part of the uh, program uh, we also have a ba honors program in built environment studies which is separate but i'm still mentioning it uh, i also uh, wanted to thank each one of you to be for being here uh, romi thanks for being here from sitbadi in himachal uh this is near dharamshala lower dharamshala and thankfully the electricity didn't go or anything didn't happen matias is from the first world right now uh in geneva mukta is in delhi i am in delhi thanks kirti and thank you um uh, taha and mr azad for organizing all of this and our communications team in uh, the jindal school of art and architecture which has been uh, making posters and everything 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 i wanted to also uh, end with a very small uh, paragraph that i actually read as a part of uh, some of the readings of um, um, of uh, uh, matias and rahul actually and i've been reading them for many years um, and i wanted to read it out and then end uh, which is academic institutions in charge of producing architects seem to exist sometimes in space time rocks where the future could be conceived as a total project architectural social and political architectural education is adrift and the same is true of of architectural museums and galleries uh, these white boxes only seem to be there to reassure us that there are still stories worth being told architectural fairy tales which we would love to believe they show good work for a good world simple and clearly delimited but of course the real world is messy it's uh, completely uh, torn together torn apart and it is unpredictable and we have to kind of continue uh, in a khana arindian mode of being pragmatic daring and optimistic through labor work and action and i what i would rather call not an architectural future but an architectural hope uh i also want to just quickly announce uh, the next uh, webinar here so thank you and i'm just announcing the next webinar which i have to quickly find in my phone sorry uh where am i where am i okay so the next webinar is going to be led by a faculty member uh, professor zai malpani and it called hashtag #wcw working with power and uh, sulakshana bhattacharya who's a work a woodworker and herman taneja who was a raisin artist will be in conversation with zai so on that note of architectural hopes rather than futures um, uh, i end this webinar and goodbye and i hope uh, questions will pour in uh, oh my god still questions coming in thank you so much thank you so much Thanks a lot. Bye. See you. Bye. Thanks, Rupert.